We are in the middle of Peter's remarkable Pentecost sermon in the book of Acts. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in the Christian era. And the last time we saw God, the Father's action in attesting to Christ's life by signs and wonders, in delivering Christ over to death by his eternal decree, and raising Christ up in triumph. And so what the Apostle Peter is doing this morning as he picks up where he left off, right, He's defending and he's unpacking the significance of the resurrection for us. So we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Two grand points about our Lord Jesus. Raised and exalted. He is raised and he is exalted. So first... Let's talk about the resurrection. Christ is raised. Peter's already declared that God raised Christ, loosing the pangs of death. He says it's impossible for death to hold Christ. And he bolsters his case with a citation here from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 16, which we heard read and which we just sang. So this is Acts 2. Verse 25, for David says concerning him. Now notice at the outset, David is the speaker and the psalm is about him. That is, it is about Christ. It's really important to grasp this, right? Peter reads the psalm as being first and foremost about Christ. It's about David inasmuch as he's a member of Christ. But David is speaking, Peter says, about Christ. It's a bold assertion. He's going to come back and support it. And this is what David says. He says, Behold, or in some translations, I saw the Lord always before me. So here he's speaking of a kind of interior vision. That the eye of faith has of God. Behold, I saw the Lord always in front of me. So in this sense, we can speak of there being a legitimate Christian mysticism. right? A seeing of what is invisible. That the eye of faith has a kind of interior vision. Right? Paul says we look not to the visible things, but to the invisible things. We are, in this sense, seers. And what is seen by faith, the psalmist says, is this. God is at my right hand. That I may not be moved or I may not be shaken. It's kind of a jarring image, right, if you think about it. We're used to thinking about Christ as exalted and at the right hand of God. It almost seems a little bit presumptuous to speak of God at our right hand. But it's a statement of the lowliness, right? Of the condescension of God, of his love for his saints, that we can in fact talk this way. 
So the apostle is talking about this inner perception, lively, vivid, that God is with us, that God is for us, that he is our help and our strength and our defense, that he's joined to your side, that he's at your right hand, your aid, if you will. And this, the psalmist says, is the ground of stability. Isn't that beautiful? David says, this is the ground of not being jittery or manic or shaken or moved in life. Now notice, it's not the belief that God is with us. Nor is it the mere confession that God is with us. Those alone will not do. What is being spoken of is the inner perception, the illumination, the interior light, the spiritual vision of God himself, anticipating the beatific vision of God in heaven. This is what faith is. It is a kind of actual seeing. It is a mode of seeing God in this life. What is required for the stability the psalmist speaks of is this vision of God in all of his might and in his triune majesty as being your aid on our right hand in all of his power. The life that's in view in the text, remember, is first and foremost the life of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That is who David is speaking of. But it's true of David and it's true of us who are united to this Christ, who are the body of whom he is the head. So there's a kind of seeing. Seeing the Lord always before us. And that's the ground of verse 26 in the text. Therefore, right, because my inner vision pierces into the highest heavens beyond the veil of visible things, therefore my heart was glad. And my tongue rejoiced, the psalmist says. So let's understand what is being taught to us here. If we behold the Lord at our right hand, David says he always does this. He has, if you will, mystic, sweet communion with God, the three in one. Then in the midst of all of life's chaos and threats and uncertainties and vulnerabilities and disappointments, we will nevertheless... Be happy. We will have the blessedness of the just. Therefore, my heart was glad, David says, in the midst of his tumultuous life. So this kind of scene, we can abstractly acknowledge that God is with us. David is not talking about that. He's talking about the kind of scene right, that was granted to Elijah's servant when he saw those flaming chariots on the mountain. We will recognize then that nothing in all of creation can sever or destroy the relation we have with God by faith. When we see, he is with us and for us. And of course, this is why we fluctuate fluctuate a bit in life, right? Because if we sense his absence, if we sense that the idea 
that God is with us and for us is merely an abstraction. Then, of course, life can be filled with horror. There can be dread or terror. We can be riddled with anxiety. But in his presence, our heart and our soul and our inward person is glad and our mouths and our tongues, David says, express this in rejoicing. Joy, then, not only can it not really be manufactured, it is a response to the felt presence of God. It's an, it's an experience of the divine nearness because God's nearness is our good. This is the end and goal of reading scripture or of worship or anything else. Right? It's quite possible for us to read scripture and never encounter God. We do these things, word, sacrament, so that we might experience the nearness and the presence of the triune God. And at the end of verse 26, David says this. He says, our flesh, our whole body then, our person in its inner and outer body and soul fullness dwells in hope. So even threats to our bodily well-being shrink down to size if we see God at our right hand. Because he is the author of life. So it's a remarkable short little passage in Psalm 16 that uh, that Peter is quoting here. Seeing God, beholding him at our right hand brings this rootedness, stability, gladness, joy. Full-bodied, quiet assurance, rest, serenity. All of this reaching beyond the present, smiling confidently at the future. Even, even at death itself. Because listen to how David continues. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Now here we can see that the psalm is not only speaking of God's help or God's deliverance in general. There's a unique privilege, a unique blessing that is in view. Right? Remember, David is speaking of Christ. You may be thinking, well, I go in and out of feeling like God is at my right hand. Sometimes I can kind of see God, perceive him, feel him. Other times I can't. You know, it's, but there was one for whom it was different. And it's the one about whom he's speaking. Right? He's speaking of Christ. And Christ knows because he always sees the Father. This is a point often uh, not emphasized enough, I think, in our tradition. Actually, in Protestantism in general, it's muted sometimes. Jesus Christ in his flesh, in the Gospel of John, tells us repeatedly something like this. I always see what the Father is doing. And I only do what I see my father doing. Whatever the father does and I see the father doing, I'm doing. He has this inner communion about which the psalm is speaking. He, always, he alone always and perpetually has this inner vision of the father. For he is the second person of the Trinity and he sees the glory of the father in the light of the spirit, even in his earthly existence, even on the cross. Even in the midst of his suffering, is part of the mystery of Christ. So he knows 
Because he always sees the Father. He knows this gladness. And he knows this joy. And he knows his flesh rests in hope. And he knows that this hope he has reaches out beyond the grave and cannot be destroyed even by death itself. And therefore it is Christ speaking in the psalm. Christ himself confessing, you will not abandon my soul to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The grave will not hold him. He sees he's going to go down into the grave, but he beholds God. And not only this, he speaks of emerging from death in the text. And thus he speaks of resurrection. Verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here the speaker of the text, Christ himself, is restored from the grave. He's preserved from corruption. He's filled with abundant gladness in the presence before the very face of the God who he had seen in his earthly life. This is the risen one entering the highest heavens in embodied glory. And that is the hope of David. It's the hope of the church. This is the full fruition of the gladness and the joy which Christ saw in his earthly life. Because the Lord was always before him and at his right hand. Right, The, the writer to the Hebrew says, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sat down at the right hand of God. This is the second text from the Old Testament that Peter cites, the second publicly cited text in the, in the New Testament era. The book of Joel, this. By the almighty power of God, the Christ is raised up into fullness of life, indestructible gladness in the presence of the God. So Peter cites this whole rich, luminous portion of Psalm 16, one of the great messianic texts of the Old Testament. He cites it, and then he draws the inference for his audience, who may not be able to yet connect all the dots quite the way we do, because we have, you know, we have... 2,000 years of reflection on these things. He says this to the assembled crowd. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. It's like a short, aborted apostle's creed about David. He died, he was buried, and anticlimactically, his tomb is still with us to this day. You know, they knew where David's tomb is. That's why you can speak to your audience like this. Nehemiah chapter 3 says this. Nehemiah repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. So the tomb of David is near the city of Jerusalem. And we know from history that it was raided it was raided because they kept talents of money in the king's tomb. And it was raided for talents of money to halt a siege in the 2nd century B.C. We also know that later Herod built a big marble monument over the tomb of David. So when Peter says, look, David's dead, we all know where his tomb is. He was died, he was buried, and still dead. Therefore, he tells his audience what we've already seen. 
The psalm, Psalm 16, cannot be about David. It has to be speaking of another. Now, we might take all of this kind of interpretation for granted. It's perhaps true that we do. But this is what came to be called a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. Meaning that the Old Testament has got to be read as pointing to and through Christ, and especially through Christ raised. He is the light which helps us read the Old Text. And this practice goes back to the apostles. You might say, well, when did the church start reading the Bible this way? Well, the answer is, in the first Christian sermon ever preached. And so, in verse 30, Peter continues, David was a prophet, he says. Not just a king, not just a poet, not just a warrior, but he was a prophet. And he knew from the covenant God made with him that God was going to sit one of his descendants on the throne. There was a personal covenant, a promise, right? 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 132. You can go read the promise, the Davidic covenant promise. It's a promise made personally to David. A promise of an everlasting dynasty. But this will not happen through Solomon. Or by one son of David after another, after another, after another, assuming an earthly Davidic kingship in an earthly Jerusalem. No, David tells his audience, uh, Peter tells his audience, because David was a prophet. He foresaw and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Right? This is the astounding claim, I think, in the ears of his audience. David foresaw, he looked ahead in the spirit, and in Psalm 16, he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He is the one who's not abandoned to Hades. His flesh, unlike David's and everyone else who dies, does not see corruption. He died, he was buried, his tomb is empty. This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, at this point, there's a double witness to the resurrection. Right? There is the prophetic foresight and speech of David, the prophet, in Psalm 16. And then there's the apostolic band of eyewitnesses who've seen the thing with their eyes. Right? That is the resurrection is promised in Old Testament scripture. And now the apostles testify. We are authorized eyewitnesses. We saw what David foresaw. The Christ has been raised. That's the first point. The second thing then is he is now exalted by God. Christ is raised. Christ is exalted. That's the whole sermon. Christ is raised. Christ is exalted. So verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of his triumphant exaltation. He is raised. He ascends. He is enthroned. He is exalted at the right hand of God. Now think of this. That one who is exalted at the right hand of God. In that manner in that glory, is at your right hand. Right? That's that's the good news. He is exalted 
to the right hand of God, that is the place of universal power and authority and universal dominion over every power and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He sits now on the throne of David, his father, which is no longer on earth, but in heaven. No longer in the earthly Jerusalem, but in the heavenly Jerusalem. So Luke tells us, remember, Luke is the author of a two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And at the very beginning of this two-volume work, here's the angel to Mary. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this exalted one now, in our humanity, Peter says, has received from the Father the promised spirit. And he has poured it out. The word for pouring evokes the promise of Joel. In the last days, the spirit will be poured. It speaks of profusion and abundance. Remember in John's gospel, we're told the spirit cannot be given. The Holy Spirit cannot descend until Christ is glorified. So now, exalted in glory, he pours out what Peter's audience is hearing and seeing. And so we're reminded by the sermon itself, oh, this is still the day of Pentecost. The assembled crowd here is still responding to the heavenly noise and the wind and the fire and the tongues. But there's another point here. It's a simple point. I don't want us to miss it. Pentecost also testifies to and is the result of Christ being raised and exalted. Right? The gift of the Spirit means many things. But it means first and foremost, the Christ of God is raised and exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. From the Father, he's received the plenitude of the Spirit and he pours the profusion of the Spirit down upon the church. So there are now, if you will, three witnesses to the resurrection. There's the witness of the Old Testament prophets, David being preeminent here. There's the eyewitness of the apostles, and there's the testimony of the Spirit poured out from on high. So when we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we're not doing anything fantastic. There's an overwhelming flood of evidence for it. And just as Peter says that David in Psalm 16 spoke of the resurrection of Christ, So he says that David in Psalm 110, that's the other psalm he cites in this passage. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, he speaks of the exaltation of Christ. So if Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Christ, Psalm 110 is about his exaltation. Verse 34, David, for David did not ascend into the heavens. Well, of course not. We just saw that he didn't rise. He's still dead. But he himself says, David says, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David is overhearing a conversation in the life of the Trinity. The Lord says to David's Lord. That is, the Father says to the Son. And he promises that he will seat him at his right hand and subdue all of his enemies. So, just like Psalm 16, 
Peter knows then that the text of Psalm 110 cannot be about David. David didn't ascend. So who's ever spoken of in Psalm 110 has ascended to the throne of God. And we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because Jesus himself tells us this in the gospel lesson. Here's what Jesus says. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? David himself says in the book of Psalms, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then Jesus asks, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In other words, the Messiah, the Christ, is not only the son of David. He's not only David's descendant according to the flesh. He is David's Lord. Thus, he's seated at the right hand of God, and that means he ascended there. It's quite remarkable, is it not, that in the opening sermon of the Christian era, you have an apostle unpacking Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 in their messianic Christological significance, showing that the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ are there in the prophetic scriptures. Through the gift of the Spirit, then, this one who's at the right hand, through the proclamation of the gospel, underway in this very sermon, is now beginning to subdue all his enemies. Right? Beginning to gather his people in from the ends of the earth. And so Peter concludes, and he's addressing the house of Israel, as we've seen. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain... That God has made him both Lord and Christ. That does not mean he was not Lord and Christ before the resurrection. He was born, the angel says to the shepherds at the beginning of Luke's gospel. For unto you this day is born in the city of David, the one who is Christ the Lord. He's always been the Lord. He was born as Christ. Nevertheless, and this is the key. In his resurrection and in his exaltation, we get to sort of see Jesus' true colors. He's unveiled with all of the full powers that the titles Lord and Christ entail. And he's openly displayed as such. This Jesus, Peter pointedly reminds the house of Israel, remember this is a sermon, is the one you crucified. So in case we forget, the sermon's designed to provoke repentance. That's the goal. Earlier in the sermon, Peter had said, there's a coming great and magnificent day of the Lord. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we know who the Lord is. It is Jesus. This brings us all the way back to the earliest Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. And there's a lot of richness, as you can see, right, condensed into that powerful little creed. But essentially it means he is raised and he is exalted. Jesus is Lord, he's raised and he's exalted. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it brings us back to the beginning of the sermon. It means for us what it meant for David in Psalm 16. It means that you are, by faith, 
in a bond of holy, sacred union with this one. You are united to this one. Right? You take the, our union with the resurrected and exalted Christ out of Christianity and you just got a bunch of laws. It's, it's brutal. Right? We, we are united in a covenantal bond of fellowship with this one who is raised out of death and enthroned in glory. Right? So the heart of the Christian religion, and this is why it can look so preposterous to, to those outside, is we are claiming like the substance and soul of the faith, is union with a resurrected and transfigured being who now exists in another order, the order of the resurrection, the order of heaven itself. This is the one we set before our eyes of faith. This is the one we set before our eyes. He's the one we are to behold, the vision of whom we are to cultivate. This one. Is at your right hand. And that means you cannot be shaken. Not by life, not by death, not by anything in all of creation. You are united to the Christ who is raised and exalted. What then shall we do, being thus united to this one? Here's a glorious imperative in the text. Therefore, let your heart be glad and let your tongue rejoice. What could be better than this? Rest in quiet assurance. Let your body, even your old decaying body, if you've got one like this, right? Let it rest in hope. For you do now and you shall fully share in his victory over the grave. And you do now, and you shall fully share in his exalted glory. He has, and he will make known to you the path of life. And in his radiant presence, there is fullness, plentitude of joy. At his right hand, the psalm ends, Psalm 16, there are pleasures forevermore. Glory be to God who has made this one both Lord and Christ. Amen. Amen.